Our speaker this morning is going to be uh, Dr. Douglas White. Um, he went to medical school and earned a PhD in immunology at the University of Iowa after residency training at Parkland Hospital in Dallas. He completed his fellowship and postdoctoral research at Washington University in St. Louis. He currently sees patients in the Department of Rheumatology at Gunderson Lutheran in La Crosse, Wisconsin. He's going to discuss a rheumatologist approach to common immune diseases with skin manifestations. Please welcome Dr. White. My uh, thanks to Greg Budolph and Renee Christensen for the invitation to talk today. This is my first opportunity to participate in this terrific conference, and it's a genuine pleasure to be here. When I was thinking about how to prepare this talk, I tried to put myself into the perspective of a practicing dermatologist. And I tried to ask, what would I want to know about rheumatology, and especially where rheumatology intersects with dermatology? So it was with that mindset that I put together these goals for the talk. I'll try to provide a very broad, if somewhat superficial, clinical perspective about three common rheumatologic diseases uh, that have common skin manifestations. Um, with an emphasis on the prevalence, in other words, how often is it going to come walking into your office? Uh, what are the common signs and symptoms? And of course, how do you start the workup if you're so inclined before you call your rheumatologist? But I also want to touch on some recent advances in the field, because there have been a lot of advances in rheumatology over the last decade. Um, particularly, some of the testing that we do is far improved than it was uh, several years ago. And Finally, I want to talk about some advances in therapeutics for rheumatologic disease. My goal here isn't to try and convince you to treat rheumatologic diseases if you're not comfortable doing so. Rather, it's to emphasize and to bring to your attention the importance of early recognition of these diseases and early referral because there's so much more that we can do for these patients than we could do even just 10 or 12 years ago. I will focus on three very common rheumatologic diseases, and all of these, as you're well aware, have skin manifestations. Systemic lupus erythematosus, rheumatoid arthritis, and ANCA-associated vasculitis, which encompasses Wegener's and microscopic polyangiitis. Um, if you only remember three things from my talk, I hope it's the three things outlined on this slide here, and we'll go over these in detail. As they, uh, as they come about during the talk. So let's start with lupus. This is the face of lupus in the eyes and the minds of many practitioners, and I think appropriately so. As you're well aware, the skin manifestations can be devastating. I also like the photo because of the look on the young woman's face. This disease can be absolutely devastating. And it occurs uh, in a horrible time in a young woman's life and can change her life forever. So how common exactly is systemic lupus erythematosus? Well, in white women of European descent, uh, the incident, well, not quite the incidence, but the lifetime risk of developing the disease is shown here. And it's about 10 times more common in women than it is in men. And about 1 in 100 will get lupus. 
You'll notice that I'm putting on the y-axis the lifetime risk of developing the disease. This is importantly different from the incidence or the prevalence of the diseases we normally think about in statistical measures. And I will come back to that in a little bit more detail later on. The good news is, is that the outlook for patients with systemic lupus erythematosus is much improved compared to where it was decades ago. In the 1950s, we calculated about a five-year, 50% survival rate for women with this disease. And it's much better than that since we started taking measurements in the 1990s and the 2000s, uh, where now we have five-year survivals well above 90%, extending into 10 years, and even at 15 years, uh, over 75% of these women are alive and relatively well. Now, some of the reason for these improved numbers is the fact that we're able to diagnose the disease earlier and we're including milder cases because of alterations in the classification syndrome, uh, in the classification system. But there have also been tremendous improvements in the therapeutics for systemic lupus erythematosus, and we also are now much more aggressive in the treatment for some of the coexisting diseases, including hypertension and infection and kidney disease, and those all improve their uh, out, long-term outlook. Now, when I was talking about the prevalence of lupus before, I specifically mentioned white women of northern European descent, and that's an important distinction because lupus is more common and more devastating in African Americans and not shown here in Hispanic women as well. And what I'm trying to show you here on this graph is the change in the y-axis where you can see in these mortality rates uh, the uh, mortality is much higher in African-Americans than it is in uh, Caucasian women. You can also see from the graph that the incidence of lupus is on the rise. Um, but what you can't see from the graph but are available in other data is that women are living longer with the disease as well. There's typically a lot of talk about the American College of Rheumatology criteria for systemic lupus erythematosus. And I want to touch on these today for reasons which will become clear in a minute. Um, these have been around for a long time. They were uh, updated in the late 1990s. And they were designed to homogenize and define patients for clinical trials. And along those lines, to be included in a clinical trial, you needed to have four of the 11 criteria. And they were never intended for diagnostic purposes, and I don't intend to encourage you to use them for diagnostic purposes. But they are a terrific mental checklist of signs and symptoms and disease manifestations of lupus to go through when you're approaching a patient that you think might have lupus. Uh, there are a bunch of mnemonics for this. My favorite is Soap Brain MD, and so I'll go through this quickly with you. S stands for serositis. Um, this is usually a pleural effusion or a pericardial effusion. It can be just pleuritic chest pain. O stands for oral lesions. To be included in a trial, you, these have to actually be observed by the practitioner. The history alone doesn't count. Uh, they're usually painless, but they can be painful. Arthritis is a common manifestation in patients with lupus. Uh, I think it's probably more common in Caucasians than it is in uh, women of African-American descent or Hispanic descent, where there are other manifestations, I think, probably mask their joint symptoms. Um, and while the arthropathy associated with lupus is not erosive, 
don't be fooled. It can be quite destructive. This is a picture of a patient's hand with something known as uh, Jacquard's arthropathy, and it's a rheumatoid arthritis mimic. I mean, look, she's got tremendous swelling of her MCPs, ulnar deviations, swan neck deformities, the whole nine yards. If you didn't know anything else about her, you'd certainly think that this was the hand of somebody with rheumatoid arthritis. But when you take the x-ray, there's no erosive changes, and her MCPs actually look fine, except for their alignment. This is a tendon laxity problem, and these joint uh, difficulties are, are reducible. Uh, in other words, when you move her fingers back into position, they slide back into position and then spring back when you let go again. And this is called Jacquard's arthropathy, and uh, probably the most common setting where we see this these days is in lupus, although it can be seen in Ehlers-Danlos and systemic sclerosis. Previously, it was seen very commonly in rheumatic fever. We don't have too much rheumatic fever anymore. I don't have to tell this audience about the importance of photosensitivity in understanding lupus. Uh, this is a tremendous problem for patients with lupus, and I'm sure you spend quite a bit of your time going over this information with your patients. When we talk about blood dyscrasias, we pay attention to all three lines. Uh, their white blood cells, their red blood cells, and their platelets are all affected. Um, a leukopenia, less than 4,000, or a lymphopenia, usually in the 1,500 to 1,000 range, will qualify as a one hit for, uh, for uh, category for lupus. The anemia we see in, in lupus is often multifactorial, but the one we're looking for for inclusion in the studies is a hemolytic anemia. And then, as you're all well aware, thrombocytopenia is a common manifestation of lupus. And as a matter of fact, ITP often precedes the onset of lupus, sometimes by decades. Kidney disease is extremely uh, devastating in patients with lupus. This can manifest itself as casts in the urine, as shown here in this picture. They also develop microscopic hematuria, proteinuria, and outright renal failure. And this can be a major problem for their survival. I'm going to skip the ANA for right now and come back to that one in a minute and jump down to immunologic disorders. What we're referring to in this category is the, is the presence of autoantibodies in these patients, and we routinely test for these. Um, many of them show up in something known as an ENA panel. This is uh, common in a lot of laboratories. Not every lab has the ENA panel, but many do. This includes the, the SSA or the Smith, uh, excuse me, the SSA or the, the Roe and the SSB, which is the law, and then also the Smith. Uh, the Smith especially is very specific for lupus. Patients with lupus often have anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies. They have anti-cardiolipin antibodies. They have the presence of something known as a lupus anticoagulant, which is measured typically by something called the dilute Russell Viper venom time. And then a lot of these patients will also have a false positive VDRL, though we don't test for this very often anymore since we have the presence of all these to go looking for. The neurologic manifestations of lupus are uh, a burgeoning field, um, and this is an area of intense research. Um, and this is hard to keep track of. I uh, put this long list up on the slide, not so that you will try to read it or try to understand it, but uh, you probably can't even from the back of the room. My point is to emphasize that the manifestations in the central nervous system and in the peripheral nervous system attributable to lupus are protean. And we're learning more and more about which of these are attributable to lupus and which ones aren't. And 
largely through the work of uh, a prominent researcher in the field named Betty Diamond, we have a new model for how autoantibodies in patients with lupus affect the function of the brain and result in all of these different symptom complexes. If you're interested in this, it's a very interesting new field. I refer you to her recent review in Immunologic Reviews. Uh, I don't have to tell this audience about the importance of the rashes and lupus. Photosensitivity isn't all of it. These patients get a malar rash, as you're all well aware. I like this picture simply because it emphasizes, uh, or it shows clearly the sparing of the nasolabial fold. I see a lot of patients who have a low titer ANA and seborrheic dermatitis, and they are convinced they have systemic lupus erythematosus, and we spend more time talking them down from that diagnosis than we do actually working up any of their other conditions. I don't have to tell this audience about the difference between seborrheic dermatitis and, and the malar rash. I think the discoid uh, rash is worth pausing on because it can be so devastating for these patients. It's a good news, bad news diagnosis. It's uh, bad news because it heals with scarring and alopecia and tremendous hyper and hypopigmentation as well as telangiectasias and atrophy. And this is, is especially deforming when it happens on the face and the head. The good news is that most patients with discoid lupus do not have systemic lupus erythematosus. Usually their ANA is negative. They might have a low titer rho or SSA. Think about subcutaneous lupus when you see this as well. About 5 to 10% of the patients with discoid lupus will eventually go on to develop systemic lupus erythematosus. So we monitor these folks. It's usually pretty mild. Um, the ones who are in rough shape are the ones with lupus who also develop discoid lupus erythematosus. And that happens in their lifetime at about 25%. Interestingly, the immunoglobulin and complement deposition on the biopsy in patients with discoid lupus is limited to the area of the rash itself. This is in contrast to some of the other rashes in lupus where you can see the complement and immunoglobulin deposition uh, even in areas that are clinically unaffected. Okay, back to the confusing ANA. Uh, these are some pictures of what it looks like when you're looking at antinuclear antibodies under the microscope. And one of my take-home messages, and the first take-home message, which is that a negative ANA in modern times makes the diagnosis of lupus extremely unlikely. This is in distinct contrast to the teachings when I was in medical school, and we referred to something called ANA-negative lupus, and we estimated that that accounted for about 20% of the patients. The reason that we no longer have ANA-negative lupus is because the method of the testing has changed. And instead of looking for these antibodies using rodent tissues, we now look for these antibodies using a human cell line called HEP2. And using this cell line, we're able to pick up far more patients with uh, lupus than we used to. And this has been an important advance because it makes the negative predictive value of an ANA so much higher. There's a caveat about ANA testing that you should be aware of, and that is when you send off an ANA, please be sure you're sending it to a lab that uses a HEP2 cell-based assay. If you don't, uh, the contention of mine and the contention in this position statement in the from the American College of Rheumatology is that you're in essence wasting money because you're gonna have to follow it up with a, with a more reliable assay anyway. 
there are a number of labs across the country that for financial reasons do not pursue testing for ANAs using the HEP2-based assay, and they use other means, and those aren't nearly as reliable. So that's something worth looking into. Now, while a negative ANA has a strong predictive value, and that really helps you tell the patients that they don't have to worry about systemic lupus, a positive ANA isn't nearly as helpful. Why? Because the differential diagnosis for the ANA is broad. Uh, and we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what, if anything, patients who have a high titer ANA actually have, but it's far more than just lupus. The list includes Sjogren's and all types of inflammatory myositis. A high percentage of patients with drug-induced lupus, about 95% of those will have an ANA. Scleroderma has ANA, a lot of Hashimoto's patients, hepatitis, the list goes on and on. So again, this isn't the kind of thing you want to memorize, but I provide you with this slide in, in hopes that someday you'll find it useful. One important thing to remember about the ANA is that anywhere between 5 and 15 percent, especially women, will walk around with a positive ANA in the absence of any clinical signs or symptoms of any disease whatsoever. They're perfectly healthy, and they will remain perfectly healthy from an immunology standpoint. These uh, low titer ANA patients uh, tend to increase with, uh, the, the percentage of them tends to increase with age, and it's hard to say exactly how many are out there because these uh, cutoffs are set locally uh, within each individual, <coughs> excuse me, within each individual lab. Okay, let's change gears and switch over to rheumatoid arthritis. This is the face of rheumatoid arthritis that most people probably have in their minds. This is a severe, erosive, destructive arthritis and uh, can really limit the use of the body parts that are affected, or at least it used to. Uh, we're trying to do better and better. How common is rheumatoid arthritis? Well, it's very common. Um, back to white people, uh, these data are from Olmsted County, Minnesota, right? So uh, data from the Mayo Clinic. But in their population, white people of Northern European descent, three and a half percent of women in their lifetime will go on to develop rheumatoid arthritis. About half as many men will. Let's revisit this issue of lifetime risk versus incidence or prevalence because these numbers are substantially different from the one in 100 prevalence that you were probably quoted in school for rheumatoid arthritis. And that's because prevalence is a poor estimate, as Dr. Krausen and her colleagues beautifully point out in this article. It's a poor estimate of an individual's risk of getting a disease, especially with a disease like rheumatoid arthritis that tends to occur later in life, and with any disease that tends to shorten your lifespan. So prevalence and incidence in those particular uh, instances don't estimate an individual's risk of getting the disease very well. Now, the providers are usually more interested in the incidence and the prevalence because that tells you how often the disease is going to come walking into your office. But from the patient's perspective, they're far more interested in my lifetime risk of getting the disease, which is better reflected in these numbers here. My bottom line is that rheumatoid arthritis is very prevalent. The early symptoms are pain, swelling, stiffness, fatigue, and usually these involve the hands and the wrists pretty quickly. Here you see pretty tremendous swelling in the PIPs and even in the MCPs. What we're worried about, of course, is the ability of this disease to go on and cause joint destruction. Here you can see the destruction of one of the MCP joints in a patient followed over time. This is about a three-year time span, 
and you can see this interval progression of joint space narrowing and then the development of a marginal erosion. And these radiographic changes correlate very well with the disability of the disease. This is somebody with severe, long-standing, uh, and advanced deformities attributable to rheumatoid. And it can get even worse, where you can have just complete obliteration of a joint, in this case, like the wrist. Well, rheumatoid arthritis, unfortunately, does not limit itself to the joints. This is a systemic inflammatory disease. And uh, it causes nodules, both in the skin and in the lung. It's associated with heart disease, ranging from myocardial infarction to pericarditis. It affects the bone marrow, most typically with anemia of chronic disease, causes skin disease in the form of a cutaneous vasculitis. Uh, it's associated with Sjogren's syndrome, carpal tunnel syndrome, and even inflammatory eye disease. The nodules in the skin, I'm sure you're well aware of. You've seen these many times before, especially around the elbow and on the dorsal aspect of the hands and wrists. Pulmonary nodules uh, are often confused for lung cancer, and uh, we many times have to work these up to make sure that these folks don't have uh, malignancy. The cutaneous manifestations of rheumatoid are on the decline. Uh, we don't see very much cutaneous vasculitis and rheumatoid arthritis anymore because, like all of the other extra-articular manifestations of the disease, it tends to occur late and in the patients who have the severe deforming arthritis. Well, since we're catching them early and getting them on more and more treatment, we're seeing less and less of the cutaneous vasculitis and these other extra-articular manifestations, but they're still out there, and they can be severe. This can be devastating and cause digital ischemia, sometimes like you'd see in a patient with Sjogren's. Some of the eye manifestations are also quite serious. Episcleritis is a very common manifestation. This is uh, scleromalacia, or a thinning of the orbit with protrusion of the internal contents. It almost looks like a, a separate pupil. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis frequently have a positive rheumatoid factor. And as you all remember, rheumatoid factors are simply antibodies in the blood that recognize other antibodies. About 80% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis will have rheumatoid factors in their blood. But the problem with the rheumatoid factor is that it's not specific. Uh, rheumatoid factors are positive in a large number of other diseases, most commonly hepatitis C. In fact, I once worked in a clinic where we wouldn't see patients referred to us for positive rheumatoid factors until they had a hepatitis C test because the vast majority of the people who came in with a rheumatoid factor really just had hepatitis C. It's also seen in Sjogren's and, in, and chronic infections like mycobacterium tuberculosis and, infect, and infective endocarditis. Uh, it can even be seen in healthy individuals. The new test and the new kit out on the block for testing in rheumatoid arthritis is called the anti-CCP antibody. Um, the presence of the rheumatoid factor and the anti-CCP antibodies can precede the onset of symptoms in rheumatoid arthritis by as much as a decade or more. And so uh, we think that, especially in the case of the anti-CCP antibodies, they may have a role in the pathogenesis of the disease and not just be a bystander. Somewhere between 50 and 70% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis have a positive CCP antibody test. But the real value in the CCP test is that there are 
very few false positives and essentially no false positives at high titer. So whereas the negative ANA has a tremendous uh, negative predictive value telling you that somebody doesn't have lupus, we have the opposite here with the CCP. A high titer CCP is essentially diagnostic for rheumatoid arthritis, you're done. Wash your hands, send them to the rheumatologist as soon as you can. And you've made the diagnosis. I'll talk uh, quite a bit more about these antibodies uh, at 2 o'clock, too, if you're so inclined uh, to hear that one. What we're trying to avoid, of course, is the progression of the disease to something severe and deforming like this. These patients uh, have a very difficult time um, putting on their clothes, um, moving around their house, and even feeding themselves. And this can be pretty devastating. And there's new hope in the area of rheumatoid arthritis, and that is not only because we have a whole new tool belt of therapeutics that are available to treat rheumatoid arthritis, but perhaps more importantly, we have a new found appreciation for the importance of early therapy. It turns out that the patient's outcome is directly correlated to getting them on therapy as soon as possible after the onset of their symptoms. And so we spend a lot of time trying to get the word out that we're trying to catch rheumatoid arthritis as soon as possible. And what we mean by this is within six months of the onset of their symptoms. So I tell people to start thinking about rheumatoid arthritis when they hear somebody complaining of pain and stiffness, especially that's worse with rest. Patients who wake up in pain, either in the middle of the night or they wake up in the morning and they're already hurting before they wiggle around and try and get out of bed, that's an inflammatory arthritis, or that's an inflammatory problem uh, that should be at the top of your differential. These patients will often volunteer that heat helps dramatically. These are the folks that try to climb out of bed in the morning and head straight to the shower and hold their hands under scalding hot water so that they can finally get them going in the morning. More than once, patients have told me for years they saved their dishes from the night before because they like the way the hot water feels when they wash their dishes in the morning as opposed to doing it at night. Um, the symptoms almost always, in the United States anyway, eventually head to the hands and the wrists. Um, in Europe, for reasons that aren't clear, they tend to be more in the feet early on and then <coughs> excuse me, eventually also go to the hands and the wrists. Fatigue is a major symptom of any inflammatory disease, including rheumatoid arthritis, and we pay special attention to that, especially in the, early, in the early days. And then, of course, as we've discussed, if you have a positive rheumatoid factor, or especially if you have positive anti-CCP antibodies, this is somebody with RA, or somebody who's probably going to go on to develop RA. That leads me to take-home message number two, which we've been uh, talking about a little bit already, which is that early aggressive therapy really improves patient outcomes. And I want to just touch on some of the data for that. Uh, this comes from 2001 already, where these patients were prospectively enrolled either into therapy that was administered early, within 15 days of their symptoms, or the uh, standard of care, which was 123 days when they finally got on their therapy for rheumatoid arthritis. And here we're watching the progression of their radiographic changes so the progression of their disease on the y-axis over time, and this is measured in months, so here we're at it four years. And what we learned from this study and many studies like it is that the improvements that we see in these patients with early therapy are durable. 
They're reflected in all measures of rheumatoid arthritis activity, everything from their radiographic scores as shown here to things like their disability scores, their inflammation scores, their physical exam scores, et cetera. And perhaps most importantly, this is the information that the drug companies don't necessarily want you to know. It doesn't matter how you treat them. What matters is that you get treated quickly. Right? It doesn't matter if you use Enbrel. It doesn't matter if you use prednisone. It doesn't matter if you use methotrexate. All of these uh, modalities work. What counts is how quickly do you get them on the therapy. The exception is NSAIDs. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs do nothing to alter the progression of the disease. They do help with symptoms, and that's still a problem because rheumatoid arthritis patients get put on NSAIDs. Their disease marches on, but they feel better, and then uh, they uh, don't show up for care as quickly as we want them to. So it's my contention and the contention of many in the field that all patients with inflammatory joint pain should be screened for rheumatoid arthritis because we have the perfect storm. From a public health standpoint, we have a disease that's prevalent. We have an exquisitely specific test in the anti-CCP antibodies. And we know that early therapy really alters the course of the disease. And when you have those three things come together, you have a disease screaming for a screening program. So, how do you check for rheumatoid arthritis? Well, from a laboratory perspective, it's very simple. You click on your little electronic medical record and ask for a rheumatoid factor, anti-CCP antibodies, the SED rate, and check their C-reactive protein. Okay, a, a quick word about therapeutics and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, the big news on the street is that everybody's well aware is all the biologics. Many of these are anti-TNF agents. Many of these are also used in psoriatic arthritis and you're very familiar with these drugs. Um, some of them are more unique to uh, rheumatologic diseases and I don't know how often you guys use rituximab, for example, or abatacept. But many of them you know a lot about. I think one of the most important things that we're realizing about the anti-TNF agents in particular is the increased risk for skin cancer in these patients, and this is obviously relevant to you and your practices. Now, there is all kinds of confusion amongst patients, people who talk on the internet, and even providers about the risk of lymphoma in anti-TNF, and patients treated with anti-TNF agents. So let's go over that uh, briefly. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis have an increased risk of lymphoma compared to the general population. It's about twofold. And that has confounded the data that has had us confused about whether or not patients who are treated with anti-TNF agents had an increased risk of lymphoma because they already had an increased risk by virtue of their rheumatoid arthritis. It turns out with careful analysis of the data and the more and more data we get, there is no further increase in the risk of lymphoma over the baseline increase conferred by the rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis. So lymphoma is not a concern in patients treated with anti-TNF agents. It's a concern, uh, sorry, it's not a concern because of their anti-TNF agent. It's a concern in those patients because of their rheumatoid arthritis, but not because of the anti-TNF agent. In fact, I think the best data indicate that when we are aggressively treating their rheumatoid arthritis, including using drugs like TNF inhibitors, the lymphoma risk goes down. In contrast, patients with rheumatoid arthritis do not have an increase in basal cell carcinoma or in squamous cell carcinoma, but when you treat them with an anti-TNF agent, that risk goes up, goes up substantially. Perhaps most concerning is the third line, and that is these patients with rheumatoid arthritis do not have an increase in the risk of melanoma over the general population 
but as time goes on, it looks more and more like they do have an increased risk from melanoma associated with TNF blockade. Uh, these numbers are still crossing, uh, the, the confidence intervals for these numbers are still crossing one, so this story isn't quite finished yet, but as these data get more and more precise and we get more and more measurements, I think this will turn out to be a very real risk and something we're gonna have to continue to uh, counsel our patients about. Other cancers, as far as we can tell, are uh, not increased in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and we haven't seen any signal for those being increased in patients on anti-TNF agents as well. Okay, disease number three, vasculitis. Um, I don't think anybody in this room needs an introduction to purpura and petechia. Um, and I think most people in this room will also recognize this very common clinical scenario. So uh, a patient with a normal platelet count develops what looks like petechia or purpura, and they get a skin biopsy, and it shows leukocytoclastic vasculitis. And this is usually probably where the dermatologist and certainly the rheumatologist gets involved, because the question at hand, and I think the first question that ought to be answered is, does this patient have isolated, cutaneous leukocytoclastic vasculitis, a benign disease which will resolve on its own, probably without much in the way of therapy, or does this patient have cutaneous vasculitis as a manifestation of a systemic disease that's gonna require more aggressive therapy? Now, there is a tremendous amount of confusion about the terms used to describe isolated cutaneous leukocytoclastic vasculitis in the literature. Um, and I, I don't want to dwell on this today. I uh, give you this slide for your reference. But if you delve into the literature about this field um, and find yourself confused, welcome to the club. There are a lot of confused readers and even authors uh, using these words. And I try and provide some clarity here. The proper term for uh, understanding and for keeping it straight is isolated cutaneous leukocytoclastic vasculitis, and this term's been used uh, appropriately by the Chapel Hill Conference in their uh, classification scheme. In spite of our efforts to try and come up with schemes to diagnose what type of systemic vasculitis a patient may have, um, and you've seen these schemes probably in your textbooks and in review articles, especially focusing on the size of the vessel that's involved. That seems to be our favorite approach. The diagnosis of a systemic vasculitis, even today, is still really checking through a long list of possibilities and seeing which, if any, fits best. And I wish I could tell you that the field were more advanced than that, but it's not. And this is the list I pull up when I'm asked to answer whether or not somebody has a systemic vasculitis. Again, this isn't the kind of thing you want to memorize. This is for future reference, should you be so inclined. Um, how do you work it up? Well, most patients with giant cell arteritis don't have prominent skin manifestations. So I don't think that uh, you're going to find this very often, but I can't walk through a talk about vasculitis without mentioning the importance of the temporal artery biopsy if you do suspect somebody has giant cell arteritis. More importantly, I think for this group, is the startup for the workup for somebody with a systemic vasculitis. So if you start to suspect a systemic vasculitis, these are the studies that your rheumatologist is going to order or at least want to get going uh, when we're evaluating these patients. 
Um, the CBC, especially whether or not the patient has eosinophilia. We need to know about their kidney function. We want to sed rate. We want to have a look at their lungs. We're going to study, or we're going to check their ANCAs, including these two new tests for ANCAs called the PR3 and the MPO or myeloperoxidase. I'll talk more about these later. We want to know whether or not they have hepatitis. We want to know whether or not they have cryoglobulinemia. We want to know if they have HIV. And we're probably going to need a repeat biopsy because we want the, di the direct immunofluorescence studies. We can't diagnose HSP without being able to see IgA uh, on a biopsy, either from the, usually from the kidney or the skin. And so this becomes very important, and the patients are a little bothered by that when we send them back for a second biopsy, but it's usually required. One last thing I should point out here, there's a, uh, an ongoing epidemic of levimosol, or levamisole, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, causing a severe cutaneous vasculitis, oftentimes in the head and neck. And this is a drug that is used to cut cocaine. And so when this drug contaminates cocaine and the patients use it, they not only have their cocaine problems, but now they develop a cutaneous vasculitis. And this caught me off guard a couple years ago in a patient in lacrosse, and it's been more and more in the news lately as, it, as this contaminant is more and more, is more and more commonly used to cut the cocaine out in the street. So I think a urine drug screen is an important piece of the work of the initial workup for a patient with a cutaneous vasculitis. Okay, a word about the ANCA. ANCA stands, as you know, for anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies. And under the microscope, these can take one of two patterns, either the cytoplasmic pattern, called the C-ANCA, or the perinuclear pattern, called the P-ANCA. Now, importantly, there's been a new development in uh, understanding ANCAs and where they come from. So for years when we studied the antibodies that bind the cytoplasm, we had no idea what they were actually binding in the cytoplasm. We just knew that it gave us that particular pattern when we put the antibodies onto these cells. The antigen that is being bound by these antibodies in the cytoplasm of the neutrophils has now been identified, and it's called protonase 3. And so we have new tests that are specific for antibodies to protonase 3, and this has dramatically improved the reliability of the C-ANCA. Similarly, a large number of patients with a P-ANCA have antibodies that recognize a protein in the nucleus called myeloperoxidase. And so specific testing for antibodies against myeloperoxidase has improved the reliability of those tests as well. Again, if you're interested, this is something I'll touch more on uh, at 2 o'clock. Some hints about ANCAs. There's an old saying, never trust an ANCA. I still think that's true, even though the PR3 and the myeloperoxidase are more reliable. Um, and that's because it has historically poor sensitivity. ANCA levels, in spite of the hopes and wishes of many practitioners who keep on checking ANCAs over and over and over again as the patient goes through their disease to try and figure out whether or not they're flaring, these levels do not reliably predict disease activity, and you can save some money and, and quit checking them in, their, in those patients. These new tests that we just talked about, uh, looking for antibodies specifically for protonase 3 and myeloproxidase have dramatically increased the sensitivity and specificity for these tests, especially in the case of Wegener's granulomatosis, where our PR3 has a sensitivity and a specificity well over 90%. 
Um, and we also think, much like, much like in the case of the anti-CCP antibodies, as I mentioned before, that these antibodies, especially the myeloperoxidase and the PR3s, seem more and more to be involved directly in the pathogenesis of the disease. So it's not only an advance from a uh, diagnosis perspective, it's an advance in trying to understand the pathogenesis of the disease over the last few years. Okay, and that takes me to my final take-home message. In patients who do have an ANCA-associated vasculitis, in other words, usually what we would have called before Wegener's granulomatosis or microscopic polyangiitis, there is a new and very effective and perhaps most importantly, much less toxic therapy in the form of a monoclonal antibody called rituximab, which ablates the peripheral B-cell compartment. Um, my hope is that advances like this, where we can separate these patients into groups based on whether or not they have an ANCA, and understand by such separations, not only the pathogenesis of their disease, but also which therapies work better, that eventually we'll be able to get rid of this list. And we'll just have ANCA-associated vasculitis and non-ANCA-associated vasculitis, and it'll break down into different groups, and then you'll know what to use as far as therapy for each of those patients. Right now, unfortunately, we're still stuck in the list unless you're happy to have, excuse me, unless you're lucky enough to have a patient who has an ANCA, because then you can just call it ANCA-associated vasculitis, and it leads you directly to the best therapy, which is this rituximab. And this was a very exciting uh, paper. It's very infrequently I go to a meeting of the American College, or any meeting for that matter, but especially in rheumatology, where you walk away with a change in how you approach a specific population of patients. And that happened a couple years ago with the presentation of this paper by John Stone, where they demonstrated that rituximab, or B-cell ablation, was not only not inferior to the standard of care, which was cyclophosphamide, but in many patients was superior. Well, that's important because not only did the drug work better, but rituximab is far less toxic than cyclophosphamide, and so this is a far preferable option for these patients, and their outlook is much improved. It's expensive, it's hard to get past the insurance company, but it's a great news uh, item for the patients. Okay, so it was, uh, perhaps a little superficial, but I'm trying to give you a, a broad perspective about RA and lupus and ANCA-associated vasculitis and touch at least a little bit on some advances in the field with respect to testing and therapeutics. And I hope this really stays with you that these new treatments for RA and for vasculitis make it more important than ever for us to try and identify these patients as quickly as we can because in contrast to when I was in medical school, there's a lot you can do and uh, there's more to do these days than to just chart their decline as the years go on. We can actually make them better. So with that, I'll stop, and uh, thank you very much for your time and try and entertain any questions. Oh, got a question. Yeah. Okay, to try and repeat the question, he says, he says, now wait a minute, are you saying that everybody who comes walking in the door with petechia or perhaps even leukocytoclastic vasculitis on a biopsy needs all those lab tests to make sure that they don't have a systemic vasculitis? I would say the answer is no. Um, I think you start getting concerned about a systemic vasculitis when you have unexplained symptoms to point you towards another organ system. All right, if you've got 
an offending agent. The patient just started a new drug. They were put on Augmentin two weeks ago, and now they developed lower extremity petechial lesions, and you biopsy it, and it's leukocytoclastic vasculitis, and you take them off the Augmentin, and they're getting better. Do you have to check their urine for cocaine? No, probably not, right? You've got a pretty good explanation. You think you're dealing with, in this case, a hypersensitivity vasculitis. It's gonna be isolated to the skin. The patient's moving in the right direction. It's in the patients who have the fever, the weight loss, the cough. Something else is wrong that isn't explained, or they're not getting better when you take away their offending agent for their hypersensitivity vasculitis. That's when you start thinking about the systemic vasculitides, and that's when I think you cast a pretty broad net uh, because many of these diseases are serious. Many of them are gonna involve uh, internal organs and require some pretty aggressive therapy. And in general, the sooner we find them, the better. And so that's when I would start that workup. Do you have to do it all on the same day? No, probably not. You know, you uh, base that on the clinical condition of the patient and, and, uh, and what's the trajectory of their disease. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the question is, do I have a sense of whether or not the anti-proteinase 3 antibody tests and the anti-myeloperoxidase antibody tests are available? Uh, they're widely available. They're frequently send-outs uh, to, to a reference lab, uh, but I, I think these are available anywhere around the country. They're commercially available, and you can get them just about anywhere. They might not do them in your own lab at home, but they're easily sent out in the back. Great question. So what do I order? Do I order the ANCA and actually look for the antibodies staining uh, the cells on the slide, or do I just skip all that nonsense and go straight for the, for the ELISA testing? In other words, the anti-proteinase 3 and the anti-myeloperoxidase. Um, debatable. I still order all three, and that's because not the, the antibody test for PR3 and MPO won't catch everybody with an ANCA. And I'm especially interested in identifying anybody I can with an ANCA because it changes their therapy and the way their insurance company responds to my request for rituxan dramatically. So I'm trying to catch as many as I can. Whether or not you have to do those all on the same day is, uh, is debatable. And I think some people would say you can start with the PR3 and the MPO and then follow it up with an ANCA if, if you didn't get it positive. In some labs, this is still reflex tested. Um, in other words, you order an ANCA, and you either automatically get the PR3 and the MPO, or if it comes back positive, they'll follow it up with a PR3 or an MPO. Uh, that's not reimbursed very often anymore, and so these reflex tests are going away, and more and more often you have to order it yourself separately. Okay, I couldn't quite hear all of it. I think I heard you, had, you have somebody with... Uh, Necrotic lesions on the lower extremity started off as purpura. Large workup was unremarkable, including the ANCA, and didn't respond to, a, couldn't, you said methotrexate? So she did do well on methotrexate. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's what we're kind of hoping for. So it would be, uh, sometimes these, uh, these cutaneous diseases can be, as you're well aware, very refractory to therapy and require even high doses of steroids. And it's our hope 
that uh, we can eventually get it under control. If we need high-dose steroids, we do, but then we come in as quickly as possible with one of these DMARDs, one of these disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. So methotrexate is at the top of our list because we're so familiar with it and it's relatively safe. And if you can achieve steroid sparing effect with the methotrexate, that's great. If that doesn't work, we tend to move towards other agents that we have a lot of experience with just for our own comfort levels. And high on the list is something like azathioprine. So if, uh, you know, five years ago, I would have given this patient rituximab. Now I would probably apply for rituximab and hope that her insurance company was asleep when the application went through because she doesn't have an ANCA. But uh, knowing full well, I'm probably not going to get it. But I have had patients where I've emphasized the evidence that they have a systemic vasculitis and applied for rituximab, and they've seen dramatic benefit on the drug. So I don't think it's... Its benefit is limited to people with an ANCA, but that's where it's been FDA approved based on this study. So if we can get it, we try and uh, use rituximab as well. Okay, thanks for your time.